Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would please, and join with me in Luke chapter 17 as we continue on in our study of Luke, Luke chapter 17. Today we're going to look at verses 7 through 10 as we think about contentment in serving. Now, I know this isn't Mother's Day, but as you're turning there, I want to consider the jobs of a mother, the work of a mother. Once you're there in Luke chapter 17, we're going to read verses 7 through 10 here in a moment, but I want to take your attention once you're there to the screen here. And in here, this Ashley Worley, who writes a blog for mothers, she put a job interview, a job overview. Here's what they're looking for. Says children are seeking an adult to care for them at all hours of the day, every day of the week, with minimal breaks. Okay, moms, you with me so far? You will be responsible for the upbringing of these children. You will be responsible for making sure that they have enough food to eat, that they are properly bathed, and that, that no accidents fall upon them. This is all to be completed while they push against everything you say at all times. Some of the responsibilities and duties include must be able to cook multiple meals at once and it must be done efficiently and quickly. You must be able to read stories over and over again, sometimes making up your own as you go. You're to clean up multiple uh, messes a day and a lot of them will involve bodily fluids and dirt. Be a constant chauffeur and make sure that the children get to school and appointment at all times. Next one would go complete a personal assistant type duties, make phone calls and arrange play dates for children. Personal care of children is required to be on call for 24-7, to be a motivational speaker at all times, personal shopper and be ready to run out and get all types of supplies at a moment's notice. This is the jobs and duties of a mother. Now, two weeks ago, now this is going to come apropos here in a moment, so stay with me as we look at Luke chapter 10. As many things that we're requiring of a mother is to serve, right? And fathers do this a little bit more. Hopefully you are doing this in helping your wife. But typically moms get the brunt of this. Now, two weeks ago, we read of the 12 who were requesting an increase of their faith. When we're talking about the 12, we're talking about the 12 inner circle of Jesus, the 12 disciples. Jesus had been teaching them that it's not enough to just swear allegiance to the kingdom of God or in our parlance today is to say, I believe in Jesus or I ask Jesus into my heart. But no, they were to continue to live and act as if they truly are citizens of the kingdom. In other words, it's not enough to say, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was a young person. It's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. No, we are to live and act as we are living in Jesus, that we believe in Jesus, that we are citizens of the kingdom. Jesus had encouraged them by stating that even a little bit of faith has much power to accomplish great things. And we saw two weeks ago that their problem isn't that they didn't really need more faith. What they needed to do is to understand and recognize and realize that they need to access and retrieve the faith that was given to them as a gift by the Father as when he made them alive, when he came and they were born again. But now as we go into today's passages, verses 7 through 10, Jesus is continuing his teaching by instructing his, the 12, the disciples, on the proper attitude in serving, using the illustration of a slave tasked with farming 
or shepherding. So Luke chapter 17, again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. It's a great way to write in your Bible, to underline, to, to just have those notes. Again, we have uh, papers in the back for you to take notes. But look at verse 7 through 9. It is here on the monitor as well. Jesus says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep to uh, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he then thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Father, give us wisdom for these are our harsh sayings and kind of uh, confusing in our time as we consider this passage. So I pray as we do the hard work of getting into it and bringing it out and applying it, interpreting it. Lord, that you'd help us to understand. Give us wisdom this morning to receive what you have for us. And above all, send your spirit that we may respond in the way that you called us to. That we may too find contentment in serving. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. At first glance, this parable seems harsh, unfair, and uncaring. It brings up images of slavery and servants that are treated less than human and granted no dignity. Jesus tells the story of a servant who, who, who labors outside in all types of weather. And after a long day of work, he immediately is required to clean up and get dressed and begin to prepare and serve his master his food. It is only after all of this does the servant finally get a chance to eat and rest. Does this sound familiar now, moms? It seems like moms, many times, you do everything for your children, and it's only at the end of the day do you finally get to enjoy your meal and to rest. And what might be considered off-putting or putting salt in the wound, the master does not even offer a word of thanks to his hardworking servant for all of his efforts and diligence in serving. Jesus says, does this man expect to get reward? Does he expect a word of praise? No. This is so much different from our perspective, especially today. We live in a day when we expect a pat on the back for a job well done. We anticipate more compensation for going the extra mile. And even today, they are now asking for higher tips and tips for just doing what used to be just rendered services that were regularly rendered. To help understand the expectation of the master, let's consider the word servant in this passage. The word servant in Greek is doulos. It means slave. And that covers a person who is either literally or figuratively involuntary or voluntary in some sense of subjection or subservancy to another. It could be an indentured servant who's working off his debt, as in those days that's how they would work off their debt, or one that is bought in a market and becomes the actual property of a master, of another. And though this seems outrageous and severe to us today, this was a fact of life. In those times. For many their only hope to feed their family. And to survive. Was to actually to sell themselves. As servants to others. And live and work for another person. It was a social economic reality. That is very foreign to us. Especially here. More so in our western world context. As though some may here though. Consider your employment. As indentured servanthood. In this parable, it seems that this was a one-servant 
household. So this, this was not a rich household by any means. There was only one servant. And the master only had one servant who took care of all of his needs. He would take care of the farm or the sheeping or the sheep, not the sheeping, the sheep. Anything that was going on the outside, including fixing fences to tilling to doing all those types of things. And then that servant, that same servant, after toiling all day, was expected to come and then turn tend to the personal needs of his master, such as cooking and serving dinner and cleaning up. And it was only after all these things the servant could sit down to eat and rest, only to go to bed and start the whole routine the next day. With no days off, no times off, no personal time, no vacation. If he was sick, I don't know what would happen. Probably still get up and do the work. This was life in that time. And Jesus is using this to help his disciples to understand what type of attitude they were to have. Tom Schreiner points out in his commentary that servants are allowed to partake of their own meal only after the master has been fully served. This was part of their normal life. In all this, Jesus points out that the master was not obligated to give thanks or even appreciate all that the servant had done for him. Yet Jesus is not done for he then he takes this scenario that you and I found outrageous that, that, that we think is harsh. And then he uses it as a teaching lesson in verse 10. Look at you can hear in the monitor in your Bible in verse 10. He says, so you also. So he's pointing to them and he says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, look at that verse. Just hold that up there for a moment, Ben. Consider what Jesus is saying here. This is not a parable that he was telling to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. Many times, again, remember, a parable is a spiritual story or a heavenly story with a spiritual truth. It was meant to call the hearer, the one who would hear it or the one who would read it to a response. There was usually a twist in the story. And so you would listen to it waiting for that twist, waiting for that teaching moment. And you can almost hear it in this case, it wasn't the Pharisees. Usually it was very, parables were very drastic and a, and a word of rebuke to the Pharisees. But this is to the disciples, the 12, the top men, the ones who walked with Jesus, the ones who, who, who ate with him, who, who walked on the water and, and went and did miracles alongside him. You would think they would say, and you also, I will not treat you like that. That's not what Jesus says. He says, you also are also just to say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Remember, Jesus has been instructing them on the privileges and responsibilities of those that enter the kingdom of God, those that have been chosen to follow Christ. And he had informed them that following him will cost them their livelihood, their dreams, their aspirations, and even their lives. Take up your cross, deny yourselves, come and follow me. And so they're, they're doing that. And Jesus is teaching them that there are many things that are going to be put on you, many burdens, so to speak. Things that will make your life more difficult. Many people try to teach you today that being a Christian will just make your life better, right? It's just rose color, but, but we're seeing that it doesn't. 
And these men have done so, or at least 11 of them, as Judas is the one who would wind up betraying Jesus. But of those 12, 11 have been doing this. They left their livelihood. They left their families. They're following Jesus. And you can imagine their attitude as they look at the other people that are following Jesus, the other hundreds to thousands that were following him. Maybe even to the religious, look at who we are. We're the ones that are really carrying the water for Jesus. We, we ought to be thanked immensely. We ought to get the best seats in the house. People ought to pave the way for us. Jesus says, no. You're to do all that I've commanded. And in the end, just say that we are unworthy servants. Yet, see, we see with the distinction of being personally chosen by Jesus to be part of his inside circle the ones selected to carry out the earthly ministry of Christ, they are not to expect high words of praise or enumeration. Instead, they were to show humility and to acknowledge that they have only done what is expected of all of God's children. And that's to be faithful stewards of his wonderful, gracious gifts. As you and I know, each and every one of the disciples, the apostles, wind up a martyr's death other than John. And even he wind up being uh, tortured and uh, alienated and cast out on Patmos. What this parable is teaching us is that you and I serve a higher master, God, not vice versa. Too many times people come to God And they say, I want God to meet my needs, right? God will supply all of our needs. We gave thanksgiving for all the things that God has given us this past week. But yet in the end, they really think that God is about getting them their their bit. Give me the best marriage. Give me the best husband. Give me the best wife. Make my spouse obey me. Give me the right children. Give me the right job. If I do this, then you will give me that. And so we think that really when it comes to Christ, it's a transactional, right? I do this, he does this. And the more I do for God, the more he'll do for me. That's the the folly, the foolishness of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Have more faith and God will give you more blessings. It's not what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is teaching that you and I, when we serve God, whether it's loving our neighbor, loving God, whether it's serving and giving, whatever it may be, that when we have done that, we are to consider ourselves not better and greater than someone else. Or even imagine how much God is pleased with us. We are to say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what God has commanded us. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that their attitude must be one of an unworthy servant. So I'm here this morning to say as we take scripture, is that you and I may need an attitude adjustment. For we may be thinking that God owes us something more, something better. We find ourselves complaining and moaning about our station in life. Oh, if God would just give me this, a better job, a better pay, a better house, a better spouse, a better this, a better that. I deserve this. We see that's the wrong attitude. Every one of us that has accepted God's amazing grace is called to serve him and only him. 
King Solomon stated that the purpose of man in Ecclesiastes 12 here on the monitor, he says, the end of the matter is this, all has been heard. For God, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God would bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God knows the motives of your heart. He knows the inner thoughts of your mind. How many times have we done a job and been complaining about it? How many times do we find ourselves complaining about someone in our life? God hears those things. And many times we may accept the things of God, but yet we're complaining about what he has given us. You've given me too much of a burden, God. You've given me too much of a difficult uh, part in life. We need to understand that he calls us to fear him and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of why we were created. The Westminster Shorter Catechism sums up this verse with this phrase. And you need to memorize this phrase because I think it's a great summary. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. For that's why you and I were created, so that we may enjoy a good, beautiful God, a wonderful, merciful Savior, one who is before the throne. This is why we serve him, for he is God and we are not. Elsewhere in scripture we read, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says, so whether you're away or home, we make it our aim to please him. Why? Because one day we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Let me tell you, in those days, if that servant in this parable, if he had gone home and his master says, all right, good, how did the work go? He goes, you know what? I didn't do much today. I just wasn't feeling it. Yeah, I just, I just, I just was feeling like I needed just some me time, you know? Well, what about the sheep that got out? Did you fix that fence? Nah, that's just, yeah, my hands, I don't know. I just, these hands weren't really made for labor. Well, get dressed and clean up and come make my food. You know, okay, okay, but you know what? I need to sit down and rest for a minute. I'll eat and then I'll come and get your, the servant would be cast out. If a mother and father did that to their children, we would consider them negligent, neglectful. Paul writes, no soldier gets entangled in some civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I'm telling you, Christian believers, if you're a disciple of Christ, your aim is to please God, not yourself. Too many of us, we have the attitude that we are worthy servants or we're the masters ourselves. Our attitudes are in direct contradiction or direct at God. Jesus instructs them to, the, to adopt the attitude of unworthy service. And this is a hard saving, saying, as even today many of us would balk at thinking of ourselves as worthless, useless, and unworthy. That's what the word unworthy means. We would scold our children if they uttered any of these words or adopted this type of attitude. And if they did, we would immediately schedule them for therapy or request some type of drug to rid them of this type of thinking. We chide at the word duty, meaning to owe or to be owed or to be in debt or to be bound by oath or obligated. We don't think that we ought or that we must. 
What Jesus is teaching here is very strange to us. To be honest, one, one, one that many of us we reject out of hand if anyone were to treat us this way. This goes against our very grain, our very nature. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In this letter, Paul is addressing the church of Corinth. This church had, been, had written a letter to Paul seeking his counsel as they were experiencing infighting among themselves. They were allowing the philosophy of the world to creep into the church, and it was creating divisions and factions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, join with me in verse 1. Paul writes, this is how we should regard us, or this is how one should regard us. He's speaking now as an apostle. Me as an apostle, I am a super apostle. Paul is a super apostle, but he says, you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they are to be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am, aware of any, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Who judges me what? Whether or not I am a faithful steward. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. What is your heart say this morning how does it reflect itself to God then each one of you will receive his commendation from God he says I've applied all these things to myself and Apollo, Apollos for your benefit brothers that you may learn by us not to be go to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another against another for who does anything different in you? For who sees anything different in you? Excuse me. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast if you did not receive it? Even if you feel that you are worthy and that you're a servant of, of great magnitude because of your talents, your abilities, and your gifts, did you not receive that from God? Is that something of your own making? Obviously, that's untrue. And so even then, we recognize that we are unworthy, that everything that we have is a gift from God. We're to be faithful stewards. This is what God has called us to be. Landon, in our scripture reading earlier, instructed us that we are to persevere in whatever duty that God has called us. Remember that? In leadership with zeal. In doing so, we are not to look for praise and rewards. Tom Schreiner writes, you might get this on the monitor. He says that God is incredibly gracious and rewards us far beyond what we deserve. His gifts and love are far beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. Yet we must understand that we do not deserve any rewards or special commendation for doing what we are required to do. And what are we required to do? To deny ourselves, tape up our cross, and follow him. We should not have any sense of being owed something by God. But instead, we should realize that everything we receive as a gift. However, some of you are looking the gift horse in the mouth 
and you're looking at the gifts that God has given you and you say, this is not good enough. I deserve better. That can be in a relationship. That could be in your job. It could be in the status of your life, economic, social, whatever it may be. We're saying, I deserve better. Doesn't God know how much I have to work? Does he not know how much I have to put up with? And then we are looking at a spouse or child or our co-workers or so on and so forth and then we ourselves are making judgment about their service the bible says we're not to judge another man's servant but to realize that god will judge us we are like servants of this parable in that we too are slaves with a job to do and we don't like that word today and that's true from american uh, connotation that, that is a terrible, terrible word. But, but the Bible actually says that you and I are slaves. That's what the word means. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have or God? And then he goes on to say, You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, in your duty. In your responsibilities. Whatever God has called you, we are to recognize that we too are not our own. We too are slaves. We are indentured servants, so to speak. But yet not out of duty and obligation, but out of love. And when we adopt this attitude, we follow the example of Jesus himself, who said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? But to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. Schreiner goes on to note, you'll see here, at the, and here comes the big point. The central point of this parable is not that God is ungrateful for the obedience of his disciples, but that he expects such service anyway. Rather, the point is that the disciples cannot boast before God about their service. Lord, look what I've done. Look how good I am. Look how many people that I witnessed to this week. Look how many people I brought to church. Look how many people that I got to say the prayer. Look how many people, look how well I love my wife and prepare or, 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 or protect or provide for my family, so on and so forth. As if all of that is not from God himself. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians 3. This attitude and this mindset was very clear for Paul. He understood it. He knew what it meant to sacrifice everything for the sake of Christ and the kingdom of God. In Philippians, in the New Testament, near the end, we're going to go to verse 7. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, here's Paul. He knew what it meant to be an unworthy servant. He gives this testimony and he says, But whatever gain I had, speaking of his heritage, his ancestry, his schooling, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, my master. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, uh, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything was worthless compared to knowing Christ. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. 
and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, what he says there, it's not like a mother who gives up or a father who gives up their time to help their children and say, man, I could have been golfing or I could have been sitting down and watching football or I could have taken a nap. He considers all that rubbish, worthless. This is the better thing. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from doing my duty, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that confident trust in the person of Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of the resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that any, may, any, may, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You see, the only way that a servant in this parable could work all day from the early morning and then work until sunset and then get into, his, get into the house and clean up and get dressed and then cook the meal and then serve his master, Make sure his master is all settled and all of his needs are met. And only then does he take his meal. The only way that he does that is to see that serving his master is greater than anything else. And so that's what I want to get to, my brothers, sisters. Do you see it serving Christ is greater and better than anything else? And you say, of course. But I say, does it really? Because do we not find ourselves in conflict with our husbands, with our wives, with our children, with work, in life, with our own self? Do we wish for more, for better? Is there no ingratitude that finds its way in our hearts? That sometimes we challenge God for what he's given us? It seems that what is needed today is a renewed commitment in serving and recognizing who we serve. And what our true place in this world is. Though we may be called to serve Christ in different ways and in di with different results, we are to do so with contentment, knowing that this is God's plan for our lives. We're to push aside all thoughts or desires that would keep us from being faithful stewards. One enemy of this attitude is selfish ambition. So what keeps us from having the attitude of an unworthy servant, of recognizing our rightful place and understanding that knowing Christ, serving Christ is greater than anything else I could do? It's selfish ambition. We desire to be served. We desire to receive from others. We desire the greater good, the greater things. Selfish ambition leads to ingratitude. It leads to frustration. It leads to anger, bitterness, and resentment. I want my own way. Could you imagine as we were looking in, that, in the beginning of that, uh, that little job interview or the, the application for the request for a mom? Could you imagine a mom who's always angry at her children because they're hungry? A mom who gets resentful of her husband for not being there all the time? Or, or, or bitterness? because she's not able to eat, we would say that's not right. In the same way, if it's a husband who gets bitter and resentful because he needs to work or he needs to do these things to help, or child, we would say something is out of balance. There's a selfish ambition there. We all have our roles to play in life and serving Christ and serving each other. 
However, we must be aware of a cancer that eats away at the very fabric of society and in our communities, in our groups, in our families. Why is it that we struggle with selfish ambition? And it's the, the problem I'm going to give you of individualism. Get the picture here as we look at the monitor. Individualism is a way of life that makes the individual supreme or sovereign over everything. This is what you and I are struggling with in our relationships and in life. We desire to be the boss. We, be, we are the desire to make ourselves the object of our admiration. Individualism is an outworking of a prideful heart. It's a prideful heart that led our first parents rebellion against God and the rejection of God's word, thrusting the whole world into sin and falling into condemnation rather than the commendation. Here in America, we have elevated individualism as an idol. If anything captures the American dream, it's the rugged, self-reliant individual who pulls himself up by his bootstraps. And unfortunately, that type of thinking and philosophy has bled into the teaching and the values of the church itself. People think of religion as having a personal relationship with Christ, one in which they are beholding to only God and the self and has led many to interpret the word of God as they see fit. It diminishes the purposes of the church. It ignores the counsel of pastors and elders that God has given to the church. Yet we see from the pages of scripture that God from the very beginning has called and chosen a people. He has been organizing and forming individuals and families into a community that covens to do life together. And this is so important. For we are not a one household servant. We are to serve together, fulfilling the purposes of God together. John Locke, one of, uh, not one of our founding fathers, but one who was influential in our political thought, he wrote this, I believe it might be on the monitor. He says, from a physical standpoint, a community is a collection of individuals. But the residents of a true community, community act like members of something that is larger than themselves. See, we really have an individualistic, consumer-driven type of attitude when it comes to church. You know, if nothing else is going on, I'll be there. Well, you know, if it, you know I, I may need to, to do some things. I don't know. I'm just going to attend. I'm just going to be a spectator. But God has called us to come to serve together because he knows that what he's given us is not necessarily a burden. And if it is, he says, come unto me, all you are heavy laden. And I will lift that burden. But he does it by causing us to serve together. So whether we're tending the farm or tending sheep, whether we're preparing meals, God has called, and I'm speaking in a spiritual sense, we are all called to serve each other. It's where we get our strength from. It's where we get our resilience. It helps us to persevere during those difficult times in our life. All of us are going to have seasons of life where things are just difficult, where we lose our energy, when we lose our focus, where emotionally we're just not there. God knows this. And he brought us into a family that we may serve together as unworthy servants, serving the great, beautiful God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. 
to combat this lure of individualism, God has created the church, both the invisible and the invisible, the universal and the local. The invisible and universal church is all those that have, that have, that have accepted Christ. The local church is then us. We're a visible expression of that universal church. Here at OVBC, we're more than just a collection of individuals that meet to perform our religious duties. We are a community of believers that have covenanted together and committed to doing life together by submitting to Christ as our Lord, as our master, and encouraging and exhorting each other to grow in spiritual maturity that we may all be faithful servants. The Paul understood this teaching when he wrote in Romans 9 here on the monitor. As you and I are to love one another with brotherly affection, we're to outdo one another in showing honor and not to be slothful in our zeal and our enthusiasm, but in fervent in our spirit, we are to serve the Lord. This is what you and I have called to be. To be honest, we all struggle with this concept. It goes against our grain, as I said earlier. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, we are called to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, we are to count others more significant than ourselves. This is where you and I need to rest and reside as we close out this portion of Scripture. It's where to recognize that we are unworthy servants who serve not only our Master Lord, but to serve one another. Not looking for praise and commendation, knowing that that comes from the Lord at the end. When we hear those wonderful words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now to combat this individualism that you and I are going to struggle with, to combat this selfish ambition, you and I need this. And here's the application. To fight this, you need to be single-minded. Write that down. You need to be single-minded. That's the problem. As James says, don't be a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. You see, that servant in the parable had a single mind. I serve my master. I'm not looking for my rest. I'm not looking for my, my commendation. I am just serving that master. He's not hearing the hollers of those that are saying, hey, come on, let's go fishing. Come on, let's go hunting. Let's, let's come on. Or, or, or Your servant is just too harsh on you. He's single-minded. Be single-minded means that I focus on God and his priorities. If you're looking for a definition, single-minded means that I focus on God and his priorities for my life. That's what it is. It's not about me. It's not really about my family. It's not about my job. You see, if we focus fully on our master, then all these things then will be taken care of. That's our vision, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added. So let me ask you, are you single-focused, single-minded on the thing that really matters? Or are you single-focused on fulfilling your dreams, your aspirations? And this is where we as a church must come together, and we must check one another. Are we single-minded? Is our focus on the right thing? We do this by forsaking all for Christ. We place Christ above our ambitions. We place Christ above our possessions. And we place Christ above all other persons. 
including our spouses, our children. Again, that seems counterproductive. It doesn't seem right. But again, as we're focused on Christ, then all those things will flow from that. Let me share this. We only find contentment in serving as we shed all pretense of individualism and selfish ambition that prevents us from being faithful servants. Scripture teaches us that with godliness, contentment is great gain. Second Corinthians, he says, I am content with my weakness, the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, and the calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because the master then comes and lifts me up. Let us commit this morning to serving Christ by advancing the kingdom of God with contentment and faithfulness, with a single-minded focus on our master, that God may be glorified and for the good of our families, our friends, and our communities. I just want to close with this as the worship team comes up and Randy prepares this Psalm 73. Is it here on there? It says, Whom I in heaven bit you, and there is nothing on our earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I pray that that is your desire. Take this verse, memorize it, highlight it, put it on a magnet on your refrigerator. But who in heaven do you desire, or who do you desire more than the true master? Let us be contented servants faithful to the end. There we head bowed and everybody closed. I just want you to take a moment to pause and consider what was said here this morning and truly play and ask the Spirit, in what way am I not contented? In what way am I allowing individualism and self-ambition keep me from the goal? In what ways am I not single-minded towards serving my Master? Am I truly considering myself unworthy? Not in that I'm not worth anything, but I recognize that serving God is my key focus. In what way may that be? And may the Holy Spirit begin working in your heart today, this week, that you may serve Him with contentment. Randy? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.